Hey, 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 welcome back to episode 28 of Free the Geek FM. In this episode, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Zend Expressive and Zen Framework Project Lead, Mr. Matthew Weirofin. Hey, 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 and welcome back to episode 28 of Free the Geek FM. Now, in this episode, I just want to start off, if I may, and I, I guess I can because it's my show, by just saying that there's been some, some inconsistency in the continuity of the show. And to be honest, it was just hard for ages to, to know what the show was, at least for me. And I sort of speak for myself there just for a moment because being the host and the person who puts it together, it was important to know what that was because then that would mean you know, how much time would I give to the show for finding guests, creating episodes, doing post-production, promotion and, and so on and so forth. And I just wasn't sure for a while, and I kind of had these sort of senses of self-doubt. I'm hesitant to say imposter syndrome. But recently, some people have been very kind, and they have shared with me that they really think quite highly of the show, and they were kind of wondering as to why it wasn't continuing. And then looking at that, and and looking back on episodes and so forth, and and speaking with the guest in this episode, the one and only Mr. Matthew Wirofini, it really became clear to me what you know that the show is valuable, that I really do believe in it, that I want it to continue, and more specifically continue as a show podcast series that in each episode helps you know my peers, fellow developers, I'm hoping yourself, to in some way grow the quality of your development career. Now that can be looking at a specific skill such as a DI container or learning a new language such as Kotlin, which I've been getting a bit into of late, or it can be looking at communication skills, writing skills, and so forth, so that you can communicate yourself more effectively, more coherently, more less verbosely, or you know you can document your projects so they have more meaning and gain traction quicker with other people. I mean, there's loads of other things. These are just ones that, that roll off the top of my, top of my tongue here. So I'm going to change the strap line. I hope that I've, I've done it by the time that this goes to air. And that's what I want the show to be, and I hope it becomes that. Having said that, there's only so much experience that this one little humble person can have. So I'm intending to have it be every episode, with a few exceptions, be always having fireside chats with somebody, some, some interesting, notable, perhaps legendary person from one or other of the development communities. Anyway... That's a bit of a spiel from me. And let's get to my guest in this episode. And I'm really excited. I'm actually kind of, as you can hear, as, my, as the, the, the pace of, of my speech there picked up before I realized that I was getting carried away with myself. I'm really kind of childishly excited because Matthew is someone who I have wanted to, to meet in person. Still haven't, working on it, but at least virtually meet, and that's fine for some time. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And if you're not familiar with who Matthew is, and you've not read the show notes, Matthew is the Zen Framework, Zen Expressive project lead. And I believe he's also the first committer on the project. And the reason why I wanted to interview Matthew, and, I, and I'm sure you'll hear it coming through in the episode, is that he's always struck me as a very sagely, very thoughtful person. Now, this this, what would you say, it, it struck me by watching a number of his talks. You know, he's always energetic. He's, you know, a nerd like myself, you know, nerds, you know, taking over the world, all that stuff. But he's a very thoughtful person. He seems to put a lot of sort of thought and care in, into what he says and not just say the first thing that pops into his head. And that's kind of meaningful because I like people who are a little bit, a little bit more reserved, not totally reserved, but just that little bit more, you know, they sort of think and they care and, and, they weigh up situations. So on a personal level, that's what really sort of drew me to, to wanting to get to know Matthew better and to have him on the show. But also from a technical level, you know, he's he's been on the Zen Framework project for 12 years now. He's contributed to a lot of the projects that have impacted me directly, that I have written about on masterzenframework.com. And so I guess there's like a, a lot of overlap and, and a lot of personal reasons to want to get in touch with him. And as he's been, uh, as he has such experience and, and so many developers I know of speak so well of him, I just thought I want to hopefully grab some of his time 
and so we can you know get that information from from himself from the proverbial horse's mouth get it in there into the show to share with you so that you can benefit in some way anyway here's a few little pointers or little bits and tips and so on of what we talked about in the show we talked about how you move from being a junior to a senior developer we talk about the importance of communication skills which are arguably what separates a junior from a senior we looked at you know we did a little bit of a, a walk back in time on the zen framework project and how matthew came to be at zend we talked about promoting projects and so forth and and one of the topics that's particularly close to my heart we talked about speaking at conferences and 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 managing or reducing or dealing with that sense of nervousness that you can so often feel when you get up there to share your knowledge with one or 12 or 500 people and you're standing in front of that crowd and you think why am i standing here they all know so much more than i do and 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 on and on and on the list goes of of reasons or really excuses for why you shouldn't be there anyway it's a really awesome fireside chat i hope my enthusiasm shares that with you grab your favorite beverage get a comfy chair and i'll see you after the chat let's see well since i actually don't know most of these i'm just going to pick one so how did you come to work at zend uh, that's a really interesting one i uh, i started off at zend in 2005 uh, i took the uh, Zen Certified Engineer, the, the PHP uh, certification uh, early that year. Uh, I had actually been offered at one point a voucher for it by the person who was running it at the time, Daniel Kushner, uh, because of my activity uh, blogging and also um, within the PHP general uh, mailing list. And he thought it would be interesting to have me take it and you know be able to post I was a certified engineer because he thought it might help uh, boost some of the visibility and I, I ended up not using the voucher, interestingly enough, because I went to my first conference that year, which was at, um, it was PHP Tropics, which was in Cancun. And uh, my company actually sent me to it. And one of the uh, caveats for it was that uh, both my boss and I had to take the certification exam while we were there. And so uh, since it was offered as part of the, uh, you know, just being there as a part of the conference, uh, we both took it there. And uh, back then, they had to. Everything was done on paper. There, were, there were no, uh, <clears throat> you know, online testing facilities at the time. Uh, and so they were also scored by hand. And so I took it in May, but I didn't find out my score until July. And uh, literally the day after I got my uh, certificate, I, I got uh, contacted by the same Daniel Kushner, and uh, he said he wanted to interview me. Um, for a new position. And uh, interestingly, the position was for DevZone, uh, so Zen's developer zone. Uh, they wanted, uh, they were just starting it and uh, he was hiring somebody for editor-in-chief. So they flew me out there and uh, I totally, totally bombed the interview. I know I did. I would say it was just horrible. Um, you know, they trotted me around to all sorts of people. They asked me questions and uh, mm -hmm. I just, I was really inexperienced for that position, but uh, you know, they had invited me out to do it. So, um, Anyway, I got back and I didn't hear anything from them until about uh, two to three weeks later. And um, out of the blue, Daniel calls me and says, you know, we're, we're actually not going to hire you for that position, but I'd like to hire you for a developer uh, within uh, the new eBiz team for me. And so I okay. actually uh, I ended up starting uh, mid-September of that year and um, I flew out there uh, for my first week and... Uh, have been working there ever since. So I was uh, originally tasked with uh, moving from a uh, set of flat file PHP files as the web server, uh, you know, as the, the web platform for Zen.com. Uh, I introduced our first, actually, first two CMSs that we used <laughs> uh, and uh, implemented those. Uh, and over the course of that, we were, uh, Zen Framework was just starting and uh, my team was tasked with uh, dog booting it. And uh, part of that was developing new com components like Zen XML RPC. Uh, which we used because uh, the front-end servers were actually on PHP 4, but, of course, then framework was targeting PHP 5 at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had to develop web services uh, so we could speak back and forth, and that was the only way we could use then framework. So, uh, so yeah, that was how I started. And uh, because of the work I was doing on Zen Framework, uh, Andy invited me at one point to spearhead a rewrite of the MVC, and after I did that, 
uh, he invited me to uh, work full time on the Zen Framework team. Uh, so I've been doing that since the end of 2007. Wow. So like right from the early days. Yeah, uh, actually, when I uh, was interviewing um, Mike Nebresny, who started the uh, Zen Framework, he actually showed me a few pieces of code uh, during my interview there. And then, of course, uh, uh, when I started, I saw more and more of it. Uh, so, yeah, I was pretty much from the very beginning. They started in like July or August of 2005 uh, with uh, originally just in-house, but then starting to involve a number of um business and corporate partners, uh, including like Google and Facebook and a few others. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, uh, right from the very beginning, you know, I've got uh, some of the earliest commits, uh, some of the earliest public commits are uh, from me at this point. Well, that's, that's a dedication yeah, for, for all those years. Um, what do you uh, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm just chucking in a bit of praise. Um, what do you sort of feel is the... The, the best things about um, how it's evolved over over the years? Or maybe that's well, too broad you know, a question. Had, yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting. One of the things that we've really done uh, that I think we've done fairly well is uh, taking a look at what people are actually building with uh, the, the project, but also keeping an eye on what are the new trends within the PHP ecosystem and uh, trying to learn uh, from our own past mistakes as well as the um, the missteps of others as well as the triumphs of others. So with Zen Framework 2, for instance, we re recognized all the problems that we had testing the framework, but also the problems that users had testing their applications built on the framework. And while we'd done tools like uh, Zen Test, uh, that you provided this nice integration with the MVC so that you could you know, kind of test your controllers and everything, it was, still quite a bit difficult, uh, particularly because we had all sorts of uh, singleton registries and stuff like that that uh, caused problems for people. So, you know, we took a look at the ecosystem and I was initially reluctant to uh, do any sort of dependency injection. I, I saw it as being too complicated for the average user. But as we looked at these problems that we were having and started looking at what other frameworks were doing and <clears throat> how they were solving this, we realized, you know, dependency injection was really the right way to go. Uh, we also looked at like what sort of couplings do we have? What sort of uh, problems do people have with the workflow? And uh, so we went from having a very finite number of uh, hooks and uh, plugin areas within the Zen Framework 1 to having essentially you being able to define any hook you want through the event manager. Uh, and that was a really cool thing. But we didn't stop there, of course, with uh, as we started looking again a couple of years later, what are the problems that we're seeing here with Zen Framework 2 and how people are doing things? And that's where we started looking at middleware and realizing that we could you know, basically even make it easier for people instead of having to embed some other object like an event manager. What if your way that you hooked things was just part of the workflow you developed for the application? And that's where middleware became really, really interesting because we could actually, people can compose exactly the workflow they want and now we eliminate the need for any sort of hooks uh, whatsoever, because you can just place in the, the various uh, components that you need in order to develop the workflow for your application. So that's the thing I think I'm most proud about is that we're willing to continually learn with the framework and then uh, help educate our users so that they understand why things uh, change, what's better about the new systems, uh, what the capabilities are, but also what the, some of the drawbacks might be. And I, I think that's what I uh, most enjoy about working on this project. Okay. Um, with respect to like the, what around the, the, the Zen Expressive um, time when it sort of kicked off, and then there were those new namings of Diactoros and, and so forth. Do you feel that those names have, have helped with, with visibility and exposure for the project? Uh, it's certainly easier to... Yeah, to a degree. Um, you know, there's been some controversy around it's like, you know, why can't you just call it uh, uh, HTTP request or uh, stuff like that? Mm -hmm. um, and the reason is that actually makes it harder to find. Um, you know, you can just, uh, Google for a PSR7, but Googling for uh, HTTP request might bring up, you know, a dozen different projects, but Googling for Directoros, you're going to find exactly what you're looking for. Same thing with Strategility, mm -hmm. uh, same thing with Expressive even. Um, although expressive is interesting because it's an actual uh, English word, you know, you might find things that uh, you don't expect. But if you, you know, do Zend expressive or PHP expressive, you'll come up with this project. Mm -hmm. um, 
so that was part of the reason for doing it. Part of it was also because some of the stuff was duplicating things we already had in the uh, framework. Like Zend HTTP already existed when we started working on Directoros. So how do we differentiate between a PSR7 implementation and our old implementation that targeted our MVC layer? So we had to come up with a different name in this particular case. Um, and the same similar thing with uh, Stratagility. You know, we could have just called it middleware, but you know, it's like a middleware library. It's not an actual dispatch system. Um, so how do you differentiate that? And you know, we started looking at it. Well, you know, middleware. We talk about layers all the time, and Strata, and that's where we got Stratagility. And um, so we, you know, we started being a little bit more playful with the names, but mm -hmm. that also has a very definite purpose because it makes uh, searching and marketing easier to uh, do when you have a, a nice discrete name. Yeah, true. I guess when, if you have a name that is that distinct, then you can plug it in and, and always come to it and not be, okay, of these 10 or however many results, which one is, is ours? Right. Yeah. If, if, you are, if you're looking for Twig, you know exactly what you're going to find, right? Yeah. Um, but if you're looking for a view layer, you're going to find, you know, several dozen, if not several hundred different uh, you know, projects out there that implement a view layer. But yeah. Twig is exactly what it is. Yeah, true. Well said. Um, how do you feel? Because I, I haven't looked at the, the, the trends for, for a little while, so perhaps this question is, is pointless um, or redundant. But in terms of, of Zen framework in respect to say that, that trending popularity within just the, the wider collection of PHP frameworks, how do you feel it, it's going there? And do you feel that that kind of trend is um, a worthwhile metric to use? Yeah, it's it's hard for me to track trends because having uh, two generic things making up the name Zend, which is a whole suite of projects and a brand name that uh, encompasses more than the framework, and then framework being you know as generic as it is, mm. it's actually really hard for us to track. Um, mm. But as I pay attention to you know what we've done and everything, I can look at our downloads as a really good metric, and uh, you know. Symphony hit a billion downloads this year, which is uh, phenomenal. But you know we're in the hundreds of thousands at this point. I mean, hundreds of millions. Sorry, mm -hmm. and that's a huge number. And people are like, oh, you know, you're not nearly as popular as Symphony. It's like, yeah, but we're also pretty damn popular. Uh, having hundreds of millions of downloads is nothing to sneeze at. That's actually a huge, uh, uh, a huge metric for us to to accomplish. So. Um, you know, I see what's happening, and I've actually seen the trend of our downloads increasing quite a bit per uh, per month. So we were, yeah, we were at the beginning of the year we were around to half a million downloads per month, and now at the end of the year we're closing in on around two million downloads or more per month. So it's clear that um, we're getting more visibility, which is great. And part of that, uh, you know, I think part of that is uh, natural. You know, people, uh, you know, using more and more of our components but i think part of that is also we have done a huge amount of work this year to try and raise our visibility um let's see what are all the initiatives uh we started doing a weekly newsletter although for a while there uh it was it dropped off the radar uh, especially around uh september and october first i was uh, i had uh, pneumonia and then i was preparing for zencon uh, but we're back to our weekly schedule again and this is really nice because it allows uh you know, people to find out what's happening within the, the Zen framework ecosystem. Uh, what are the projects we're working on? What are other people writing about? And that, you know, people tend to, you know, when they see this stuff, they get excited, they share it with friends and people start uh, trying things, which is great. The other thing we did was uh, we were doing at least one uh, blog post a week for a while there. And actually for about probably three or four months, uh, two blog posts a week. And it's so much so that we ended up getting two eBooks out of it. Uh, we um, went and aggregated all of these and created a couple of eBooks uh, that people can download uh, that uh, cover the Zen framework components, but also some common expressive patterns. And these are all based on our blogs. And having that you know constant content stream coming, people tend to notice that. We certainly noticed that from the beginning of the year where not a lot of people were picking up the content to um, towards summer uh, as we we're winding down a lot of our content initiatives. Um, people were, you know, finding this content regularly and uh, really excited about it. That helps build the ecosystem tremendously. Uh, we also uh, switched over from using IRC to using Slack. And uh, this was a bit controversial. People are like, well, you know, IRC is an open protocol. Anybody can join. But that was exactly the problem we were having is that uh, we had a lot of people joining who 
uh, weren't contributing positively to the discussions. Let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Slack provided us, you know, better tools for moderation and, um, you know, having a gatekeeper. Sometimes it feels icky, but at the same time, we can't uh, get around the fact that not everybody is nice. Uh, and um, doing this move actually helped a ton. But the other part is that it forced us to start thinking about that channel a little bit more and thinking about, you know, what makes this sort of real-time communication useful. And uh, we ended up building a chatbot that uh, does things like it acts as a webhook for GitHub. So it's able to uh, you know tell people about releases and that sort of thing. We had that sort of thing in IRC, but we're able to give so much more information uh, visually within Slack that we weren't able to do in IRC before that this becomes more interesting for a lot of people. And we're getting a lot more interaction around our issues and pull requests than we previously did because of this. Um, we're also using that when we did that, uh, we also discovered that we could do some other fun things like uh, aggregate tweets that were coming in. So as we were uh, tweeting from our ZF dev team account, uh, we could have those in there. So people wouldn't necessarily have to follow it, but they could see the tweets coming up in a channel and go, oh, I didn't know about that. Click on the link, get some more information shared around with other people, which mm-hmm. is also really nice. Part of that, too, with uh, the tweeting was we uh, started doing some automation around the tweeting so that we actually have a steady stream of content going up, which we didn't have before. Um, so we're rotating articles, and we swap out what articles are being rotated, uh, not as regularly as we should, but <laughs> we still swap mm-hmm. them out. And so people are finding out what's going on in the ecosystem, what we're doing, what uh, uh, blog posts we've done, that sort of thing. And those are getting out uh, every day, and that helps drive our, our uh eyes to the project as well. So that's been a, a really interesting uh, bit of marketing for us to do. Um, and then we finally created forums. Uh, people have been asking for forums for years, and I kept saying, you know, a mailing list is enough. Well, our mailing list ended up kind of dying because of infrastructure changes due to a number of factors. And um, I realized that, uh, honestly, the, the mailing list was not a great source of uh, information because people couldn't go and search it later. And so we uh, worked with the people at Discourse uh, to set up our forums, and they're actually hosting them for us. And uh, so we're able to have this uh, forum that allows people to ask questions, allows us to post things like RFCs, so that uh, especially things that span multiple repositories, it's really nice to have a single place that we can go and people can go and look for the RFCs on Discourse and uh, find out what we're developing comment on it, give us feedback immediately uh, so that we can start incorporating that before we even start developing. Hmm. So having all these tools in place has helped really drive up the community uh, awareness, but also drive up visibility within the greater PHP ecosystem. And so I've seen um, the benefits of this, you know, over the course of the year, and it's been uh, really rewarding to uh, see more people blogging about the projects and uh, being interested in them, seeing people trying to do integrations with other frameworks and uh, component libraries. And I, I really like seeing that uh, all this is coming to fruition finally and uh, people seeing that, you know, Zen Framework is not this monolithic application that uh, they may have learned about five years ago, but instead it's this um, very loosely coupled component framework, which is what we originally started with and that they can adopt without necessarily having to adopt the entire Zen Framework ecosystem. Okay. Yeah, and no, it's... it's, it's... It's definitely heartening sort of seeing so many newer developments and, and Slack and, and so forth, I guess being perhaps one of the most, most visible. Um, and it's, I don't know, like I'm, I'm, I think it was Gary Hocken and Chris Hardias and I, or a couple of us were chatting, or I got into the conversation, I should say, uh, on the on Slack versus IRC. But I don't know, like if, if it works, then it works. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's, yep. I, I find it's, uh, you know, for me, if nothing else, doing the change has forced us to rethink about how we um, communicate with our collaborators. And, uh, you know, building up all these different automations for communication have been and immensely rewarding. And they're things I just didn't think about because, now we have an IRC channel, just, you know, it's there, whatever. And now it's like, okay, if we're going to address how we collaborate and everything, all of a sudden, you know, making that switch, if nothing else, forced us to rethink what we were doing and what could be better? And I, I really think that's the the key part is making us figure out you know what could we do better in this case. 
So, so not only what I sort of having a you know in, increasing the the quality of the framework, but then the the marketing and the promotion and like all the the various aspects as well. Did exactly. You, um, I had a question then for a second, and then I lost it, which is I don't know. I'm just going to say I'm a dad and I'm over forty, um, <laughs> and that happens. Um, oh, it was there again. Uh, whatever, it'll come back around. So where do you feel like looking at say Zen Framework 2 and, and, and Zen Expressive, perhaps more specifically, mm -hmm. um, if someone was to start a new project uh, and they, I guess they had the choice, perhaps this is a loaded question or an easy answer one, I don't know, which one would you prefer <laughs> or feel that would be better that they went with? And this is probably a silly question. I, I, I don't know. I, it's not a silly question, actually. So I think it's a really good one because... Um, you know, some people are going to say, well, of course, you're going to um, say the framework, the MVC framework, and others are going to say, of course, you're going to say expressive because it's the new hotness. Um, and honestly, it depends. <laughs> mm -hmm. If you're already familiar with Zen Framework 2, uh, start a Zen Framework project, a Zen MVC project, because you've already invested the time to learn about, uh, you know, how the event system works, uh, about how the listener system works, about how uh, the service manager works, all that stuff. If you already know that, there's no reason to leave that ecosystem. And we're actually still releasing stuff for that constantly. In fact, one of our contributors uh, is working on <laughs> updates to Zend Router to make it work with PSR7, mm -hmm. um, which means, of course, a new major version of that, but also a new major version of uh, Zend MVC because currently it's uh, expecting uh, Zend HTTP messages versus PSR7 messages. So it would uh, require changes to the MVC and also the module manager. So we're actually looking at a version four of the MVC sometime within probably the next six months because we can actually start adopting some of these standards. So it's not going to go away. There are going to be some interesting changes coming in the future. Uh, but if you've invested that time and effort to learn how all this stuff works together, of course, I'm going to direct you towards that. However, if you're not familiar with it, learn middleware and do expressive. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, that seems like, uh, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, he's just because he likes middleware. Yeah, I do like middleware because it's so simple. Um, during ZenCon this year, I did a keynote on middleware um, and also a, a talk on uh, actually building uh, an API using middleware from all over the ecosystem. Uh, what I brought up in the keynote was, you know, PSR 15, the middleware interface, is literally two interfaces, each defining a single method apiece. Hmm. That takes like no time to learn at all, right? Yeah, <laughs> it true. takes a little bit of time to understand how, um, you know, how middleware, how to compose middleware and effectively, right? But mm. it's a relatively simple paradigm versus having to learn about uh, an event manager, how bootstrapping works, how to attach listeners, priority of listeners so that they work in the appropriate, uh, execute in the appropriate way, uh, learning about how ZenView works and all that stuff. Let's say you already know Twig. Let's say you already know Pimple. And uh, let's say you actually don't give a shit about what I just boosted your ratings on here. Sorry. Uh, well, let's say you don't <laughs> care about how, <laughs> um, you know, what router you use, just as long as you're able to route requests to the appropriate place. Middleware then becomes just an implementation detail. It's like, how do I get from this URL to something that handles it? And at a certain point, you say, okay, well, this is what the handling part is going to look like, but I need to have an authentication in front of this. Well, instead of having to learn an arcane system, you drop in an authentication middleware directly in front of it, and you configure it. That's it. And that's what I really like about the middleware ecosystem is that you can really have the fully decoupled experience that we were really trying to promise in the version 2 frameworks, but didn't quite get to. Mm -hmm. Now you really can. You can go and literally grab something from the, uh, you know, the uh, PHP middlewares project, you can grab pretty much any of those, configure them and drop them in and not have to do any special wiring to make it work in your middleware runner of choice. It could be slim, it could be um, expressive, it could be a relay. Any of these will be able to execute it without a problem. And I love that. Okay. Um, and to me, that's the, the goal of any good framework is actually to make it simple for you to deliver business value. So if I'm able to do that in a matter of minutes with middleware, I would much prefer that to spending a couple of weeks learning a framework just so that I can then start writing my hello world. So that, that's kind of the way I look at it. And 
this comes from somebody who has spent a significant amount of time on a framework, right? Mm, yep. <laughs> As you said earlier here, I've been working on this for 12 years. What I really wanted to do with the version two framework was make it modular, make it easy to drop in new features. And we did. But I found over time that writing those modules took a, a significant amount of effort. When I started playing with middleware in Node and then in PHP, I realized like how easy it was. It was almost like going back to that, you know, a page per request, right? Mm, it's almost like yep. going back to that that sort of simplicity, but I had so much more power because I could do substitutions easily through my DI container. I could uh, change the workflow, not through includes and you know wrapping uh, a bunch of conditionals and everything within my file, but I could literally just go and create a middleware workflow and those each one of those middleware act as my conditionals in many ways. And they will make sure that my handler either gets executed or if there's not enough stuff in the request to do it properly, it kicks it back out. I love the fact that I can do that so easily. Yeah, I think that was something I, uh, I'm, in, I'm in the middle of uh, taking the, the book I wrote and, and converting it to a course for Pluralsight. And I think that was one of the points I mentioned. It's like, let, let's have a, a hypothetical scenario. You know, you you want to add, I think it was like authentication and authorization to a ZF2 project, which didn't have it at the start. I mean, it sounds like a bit of a, a naff thing, but it was like a hypothetical that I could think of to exemplify the point, you know, and how would you do it in, in say a ZF2 context, you're choosing say ZF2 as our example, um, versus uh, how you would do it in a middleware based approach. And it seemed to come up really well. It, effectively, it was, it was what you just said, you know, one, you sort of have to do like a whole lot of work. The other is just sort of stack the pieces together in the right order and continue on. So yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely much more an, um, enjoyable approach to development than I've had before. I found with the authentication, it was rather interesting because I was prototyping an API recently and I needed to make sure that um, a particular handler that, you know, it, I needed the username essentially so that I would select the appropriate stuff from the domain layer. So I dropped in um, an HTTP basic middleware in front of that. And that gave me that information, which is great. I knew in the end, I didn't want to use that one, but it allowed me to prototype, which is great. And then I was able to go and use uh, something like the OAuth2 client from uh, PHP League and drop that in. Uh, and while it doesn't provide middleware, I could write middleware that then went and consumed that API so that I could present a login page if the person wasn't logged in and return that immediately. Or have that act as middleware so that as a uh, request came in, um, I could have them authenticate. They click a button, it goes to their provider, they authenticate, it comes back in. And now I have the request token in the header. The person's authenticated. I know what the person's username is, and I'm able to then continue on and go from there. Mm -hmm. So it allowed me to prototype, but then eventually go into production without having to change the actual code that actually handles the request in the end. And I love that fact that I didn't have to do anything there. And that was somewhat possible with you know, the MVC framework as well. I mean, Apagility did a, a lot of stuff with listeners so that you could do similar workflows, but it was all pretty much a hack in there because it was so easy for, it was fairly brittle for that to happen. And we had to do a lot of configuration. If things didn't match exactly right, you never knew exactly what the workflow ended up being. And now I can literally drop the middleware directly in there. I don't have to worry about uh, a lot of configuration and everything. I just drop it in there and I'm done. Mm. Yeah, I, I really appreciate when you were giving me feedback on the book about how, you know, spending time on focusing on how you can sort of compose routes and, and apps and so forth, because I'd never really took it into account um, fully up until that point. But after that, it's like, oh, actually, this is so much cooler than I thought it was before. <laughs> awesome. Now, as I looked and thought, wait a second, I kind of like, you know, you, you realize you've sort of just scratched the surface and there's so much sort of more below that, so... Yeah, it's definitely been a, a growing experience. Um, with, I guess, sort of maybe sort of cutting onto onto a different topic. Um, yeah, you sort of mentioned all those all the, the years of experience and so forth. If, because part of the reason that I started the podcast is is yeah okay so to talk about specific topics such as what um, uh, frameworks or PHP or a particular language but also to sort of help a developer sort of to, to grow in, in perhaps non-technical ways. 
so as, as someone with with so much experience how what what would you suggest for someone who who maybe is sort of just starting out like is there a um a set of ideas or concepts for them to sort of progress through a career to sort of i know this is quite a segue but sort of to well to, to really become yeah, like no, a, I mean, a yeah you know we, we talked earlier about you know how i started at zend and what i um i did there honestly my promotions and my changes to the zend framework team happened you know in part due to skill technical skill but i think the bigger thing is communication and that's the one skill that uh you know people talk about it as a soft skill no it's a hard skill being able to communicate in a way that people understand so that you can communicate your ideas so that there's no guesswork about what you're trying or about your intent but people know clearly what it is you intend that's a really tough skill to learn and it's one of the most valuable things you can have as a developer if i can communicate my ideas succinctly then another developer can pick that up and say okay this is the direction the person wants to go this is the information they provided us i can code to this a skilled developer is able to take that communication and do something with it so learning to communicate clearly is going to be a huge thing and it ends up affecting your code as well because when you start thinking about how do i communicate clearly to somebody you also start thinking about how do i code so that the intent behind this code is most clear and that's i think i you know i keep coming back to middleware that's one of the things i like about middleware so often is that it usually is very succinct mm -hmm. this is going to do this one or two things and then it delegates onto the next one or it delegates onto the domain layer behind uh, underneath it and that domain layer has its own ubiquitous language so that the intent is very clear that to me is the biggest skill that you can learn and when you start learning that you know syntax is something that you obviously need to learn as a beginning developer you need to learn how the language actually works and how to make it do what you want but communication is the thing that separates a, a, a you know talented developer from an expert developer from a team lead from uh somebody who is actually able to architect a system because an architect is going to go and communicate the intent and the ideas behind decisions in such a way that it's clear what needs to be built. Okay, I like that. That, that reminds me of something Stephen, I think it was Stephen King said, he said it wasn't, it's not the job of the listener or the reader to figure out the intent of the speaker or the author. Right. So he sort of says, you know, it's, it's your, if, yes, I guess it's, it's, uh, it's related, I it's guess. It's chopped out. Yeah, to yeah. say, you, you, your reader doesn't have to figure out, okay, well, what exactly are they trying to say there? You have to communicate that to them so that they can then build upon that, not try and fit the bits together and go, I think that's what they meant. Right. Okay. That's, that, yep. that's the process for me, you know, you're building specifications like you know, PSR 7 and uh, 11 and 15, you know, that's one of the things that is, we've really worked on it. You know, if there's ambiguity in the specification, people are going to latch onto that and go, well, what about this? What about this? So if there's ambiguity, it either needs to go away like you just get rid of the statement entirely mm. or you need to say okay i need to refactor the statement and make it more clear and when you do that then the programming decisions become very easy because if there's no ambiguity you're not you know sitting there in the trivial detail of you know well what do i do about this situation instead you just code to the specification and if there's something that falls outside the specification such as for instance well i wonder if i should throw in an exception here well if the specification doesn't detail yes or no then it's a question of okay is an exception warranted and then you just mm -hmm. throw it right and that's a, that's the part there is that you can either get rid of the ambiguity and say you know i'm just not even going to mention exceptions or you can say it has to be a very precise exception in this case we need to throw a you know request not handled exception or something like that mm -hmm. so that the, the the person programming to the specification knows what to do but again it comes down to clear intent in the communication Okay. Yeah. I like that because there's, there's so many meetings that I've been in over, uh, over a number of years where it's always, but I thought you meant, or, but why didn't you? And it's like, well, this could have been resolved, I guess, earlier if that ambiguity wasn't there. And let's be honest, there's always going to be some ambiguity. I mean, it's yeah. rare to have something that is so perfectly clear that everybody will interpret it exactly the same way. 
But on the flip side, uh, you can do as much as you can to reduce that ambiguity and make the intention as clear as possible. Then you're going to make it much easier for everybody you're working with, uh, whether it's somebody uh, b below you who's going to actually implement the code that you're describing or you're writing code that somebody else uh, is going to be reviewing for them to be able to go and say, okay, I understand the intent here. That's going to make it so much easier for them to review if the intent is perfectly clear as you go forward. And that might be in the code itself. It might be in your description of what you're trying to accomplish in the code so that they know what they're reviewing in the first place. It all comes down to clear communication. And that's a, a skill that I think everybody, every developer really needs to work on. But it's a, I think it's true for all of life as well. When I'm able to communicate more clearly with my uh, wife and kids, they know where I'm coming from. They don't have any question about, you know, what's going on with Papa today. It's a, you know, <laughs> they know exactly what's happening, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's instead they, they know, oh, okay, so he's not feeling well today. And he just told us that. <laughs> so mm. now we know that, you know, the reason he's in a funk and everything is that, you know, he's got a, a nasal congestion or whatever, you know, yeah, <laughs> whatever that's right, the case may be. That's so much, that's so much easier than them trying to guess, you know, why is your dad in a funk here? They, they know what that is. It comes down to the, that clear communication at all times. I'm not an expert at it. I, I try my best though. And I try to improve my communication at constantly. And mm -hmm. that's the one thing I think I've been doing uh, really since I was in college. Uh, so that's a, a long earned skill here. <laughs> yeah, definitely true. Like, I, I don't know how I do, to be honest, but I, I know I got critiqued for, uh, actually, since I met my wife, you know, I'm, I don't think she'll be listening to this. So I think I can say this. <laughs> <laughs> but I, w I was want to, uh, apparently, I, I'd never known this before. She actually uh, put me on the spot, but she said, you know, I really like you. But firstly, English isn't my first language. It was, yeah, I think it's a second or third. And she said, your, your accent's strong, you speak quite quickly. And then you kind of, you seem to just flip between topics and ideas mid-sentence. So I'm wondering if you could help me out here and just slow down a bit. And I, but, but the funny thing was, <laughs> up until that point, no one that I'm aware of had actually ever said that. Yet after becoming aware of it, it seemed to, I seemed to notice that a lot. But over the, but that was about, it was going on about 10 years now. So I like to think I've gotten better, but I think there's probably still room for a lot of improvement. But through having heard that, yeah, as, as you said, I then noticed it in other areas, that if I was more to the point here, there was so much less effort involved and the conversations became sort of shorter and you didn't have to kind of repeat yourself. And so I've definitely seen a lot of knock-on effects from paying attention to that. Right. I've had it, uh, it was pointed out to me actually fairly early uh, in my speaking career. Uh, one of the critiques I was getting was I spoke too fast. And I noticed it in terms of I was finishing my sessions way earlier than I had practiced. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's something that I had practiced at 60 minutes that now suddenly became 40 minutes, which meant I was ending too early uh, uh, within the, the sessions. And so people would say it was too short or he spoke too quickly. And so I took that to heart. I recognized that this was a problem, especially when I was going abroad to speak, because a lot of people, English was not their native language. So slowing down meant that I made myself more accessible to people. Mm. And I actually, this past ZenCon, I actually had somebody uh, approach me um, in the hallway track and said, you know, I really appreciate your talks because you're always very slow and deliberate and it makes it very easy to follow. I'm able to totally understand the ideas you're trying to do. And it was a huge compliment to me and it because it showed that the work I have been doing to slow myself down speaking at conferences mm -hmm. has paid off. Uh. And it meant that I was able to reach users and listeners and attendees that I may not have been able to before. And uh, that that's a really nice feeling. Um, but it also shows that you know this stuff doesn't necessarily come naturally. You do have to put the effort into it. And uh, that's why, you know, people talk about communication and uh, human mm -hmm. social interactions as soft skills, but they're very hard skills. They're stuff that you have to put in as much practice, if not more, as you do with your coding. Yeah, true. I, I guess there's so much perhaps more nuance in, in communication than perhaps there is in code. I'm, I'm not sure that's just an off the top of my head thought, but 
I'd wonder if, or maybe there's so many more sort of variables, you know, people with different backgrounds, multiple languages, which one are you communicating in? And is it the, perhaps the first or near to the first of of both parties and and so on that I guess Mm -hmm. so many things that could affect um, the ability to deliver and to receive the information. But on the point of, of conference speaking, as, as someone who's not as, uh, as practiced, um, do you have maybe like one or two sort of pointers for, um, yeah, as, as perhaps you're standing there to control that, that sense of nerves and to, to, I guess, deliver as close to what you're practicing um, in your private time um, as you are when, you, when you're standing there? Because I, I know I sit here in in, in my room. I, th- I think I got this tip from from Joe Ferguson that I, I picked something in the room, and that would be my muse, and I would speak to it. And after mm-hmm. however many times, I you know I feel comfortable with the material. I give it to to friends to to review. You know to say okay, well that's not relevant or that's outdated and and so on. So I kind of feel comfortable in what I've written, but then I get in front of people. And I just all of a sudden these doubts come in, going maybe it's it's too amateur, maybe they've done it before, and I sort of begin second guessing myself, and and yeah, I'm I know I need to control it. I'm just wondering if you had any su- suggestions for for dealing with that feeling and just delivering what you practiced. You know, it's interesting because uh, I get nervous before every talk, um, and I always both before and after, you know, wonder, you know, why, why am I up here? Um, am I actually delivering anything of use to people? You know, anybody could talk about this subject. You know, the, the same doubts come to me all the time. Um, what happens for me though, is, uh, two things. Uh, first I, I do, uh, meditative practices and martial arts. Uh, I've been doing these all my life. So in the moments before, I speak, uh, you know, I'm up on the stage or in the wings or something. Uh, I actually take a few moments to do some deep breathing exercises, which helps bring my heart rate down, helps me slow down so that when I go out there and start the the presentation, um, I'm not, you know, in the agitated mode that uh, I might be otherwise. So that's the, the first thing I do constantly. And that works for me because it's something I practice all the time anyway. If it's not something you practice all the time, quite often you, you're you not going to get the same benefit because uh, it's a muscle memory. It's one of those things like I, since I do it every day, when I do the same things just before a talk, it brings me back to the, the practice of, of what I do every day. And so that it's a muscle memory there. It's not something you can just say, okay, well, I'm going to breathe before the talk. You need to be doing it all the time. Um, the, the other part that I have to remind myself of constantly is Yes, pretty much anybody might be doing this, but I'm the one who actually applied for the the call for papers and developed the talk and am currently up here doing the talk. So right now that makes me the person who's the expert in the room. Even if there are other experts in the room, I'm the one who has put in the effort at this point and, and done this. So that's the part that um, I recall as well. But the other part is understanding that I might not know everything about the subject um, or might not know all the context to which somebody might apply this particular solution or problem. And so if I have a question and answer session and somebody asks a question about something I hadn't considered, it's perfectly okay to say, you know, I don't know about that. Mm -hmm. Thanks for the information. I'm going to follow up on that afterwards. Or can you see me afterwards and give me some uh, URLs or links or whatever that I can, uh, you know, use to, to follow up on this and I'll share them with the other people in this room uh, when I do, you know, once I have those. Having that humility and open-mindedness, I think is one of those things that also reaches out to uh, people because they recognize that, hey, you don't have to have the answers every single time. You don't have to be the know-all, be-all expert of this particular domain in order to be up there talking. Yeah, that's a good point. The people up there talking are just humans just like you. And so um, when I'm able to think about that perspective and uh, keep that that uh, open-mindedness and humility, it also helps me with dealing with those doubts and everything because I recognize this is, you know, for better or for worse, I'm the one up here right now because I took the time to to be up here 
Okay. But that also doesn't mean that I have to be recognized that, you know, does that make me an expert or anything? It's okay that I am not. In fact, it's probably just fine. And then it's no longer an imposter syndrome thing because it's a recognition of I may not know everything in this subject, but I know what I'm talking about today. Okay. Yeah. I, I like how you frame that, that you sort of, you, you remove that need to have absolutely everything and say within this particular context, yes. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I was thinking of applying to, to tech. I've got some ideas in mind, but I just sort of hadn't done it yet. I was sort of flipping that coin. It's been a, it's been a little while since I've given a talk and th that sense of nerves was kicking in just a bit, but. I have to tell you this, uh, ZenCon this past year, it's the first time I've spoken at a conference in two years, and uh, my nerves were through the roof going into it. Um, but at the same time, I probably practiced more on my keynote than I've practiced on any talk I've ever given. Um, and so by the time I got up there, uh, it was actually great because I had done my breathing exercises beforehand, and I got up there, and because I practiced so many times, I actually was able to relax into it and improvised a few times uh, in certain areas, uh, both in uh, bodily uh, gestures, but also in uh, things I said during that, which uh, a couple of those actually really resonated with people. So it was really nice to know that, you know, that practice that you do is also a part of that muscle memory. You know, you, you can't just go in there, you know, having read through your slides a couple of times. You actually have to have said them out loud and spoken and know the cadence and everything mm -hmm. of what you want to deliver so that when you go up there, you can just relax into it. This is something I've done before. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, this practice makes perfect, but part of it is, and especially with something like this, where there might be uh, anxiety around, you know, the fact that there's an audience in front of you, um, being able to relax into that muscle memory is a huge thing. Definitely. And I, I know I, I think I got better um, when I read a, a post I think there's a post from Troy Hunt. Um, if you're not familiar with Troy, he's a, an Australian uh, like Microsoft MVP for security and and blogs. Right. Um, what's the what would I say voraciously on 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 all kinds of security topics and so on. And he had this post because he gives so many talks and he listed just into how much detail he goes when preparing himself to the point of he always has I think an iPad or a, some kind of tablet there. And uh, he can sort of look at it inconspicuously and know that roughly at this point here and then sync that with where he is in the talk and say, should I go faster or can I slow down to keep himself mm -hmm. so that he roughly ends at about the time, give or take, I think a minute of when he should be ending such that was there meant to be um, questions at the end or is it just the talk and then it's done and questions afterward and and I think I saw a few other posts by people. And, and it's interesting to see the, the range at which people, um, some people will go to, uh, to prepare themselves and the level of depth, which is it was quite fascinating. But I uh, definitely agree that sense of, I agree you couldn't, well, I know I sure couldn't write a talk, read it once and then go, okay, we're fine. Because I'd just be stumbling and stammering everywhere. And I, you know, I've actually delivered a number of talks like that, and they, they don't always go well. <laughs> but uh, one of the things, too, that I've had to do a number of times is, you know, prepare uh, a presentation, you know, rather hurriedly for, uh, you know, one of our clients at uh, Zen. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they want me to do a presentation on uh, something or even for our uh, pro services team or whatever, where there's short notice. I don't really have time to practice it. Um, it's not something I've planned for for months or anything. It's a, literally like, you know, one or two weeks notice sort of thing. And I can totally do it. You know, if it's a subject matter that I already know, I can sit there and ramble on forever if I want to. But uh, especially for conferences where there's a specific time frame, um, you have mentioned in your abstract, you know, specific topics you're going to cover. So people have expectations. Uh, you know, the sort of practice and being able to deliver what you have promised is uh, really, really important. Um, and so, you know, I find over the years that uh, I actually do more preparation for talks uh, as time goes by. And uh, that's also part of my hesitation for applying for conferences quite often is, yeah, that's a lot of work, you know. Yeah. Uh, but if it's something I'm passionate about, it makes sense to go ahead and apply and um, be able to deliver uh, this message uh, to people uh, in this training or whatever the case may be. Yeah, that's the, I think that's the point. As you say, on, in one hand, 
well, on one hand, you, you can know a topic particularly well and you're happy to talk about it at length and would cover a lot of details. But on the other hand, as you say, you have a specific time limit and you have to cover certain things. And if you're sort of freewheeling it, would it have, um, would it come out in, in a coherent manner? And would you cover those things? Exactly. So, yeah, I guess is, uh, I guess depending on context, both can work really well. But as you say, for that specific time limited or time box talk, I guess much better to make sure that you've got at least something to say, okay, talk about this, then this, then this, then this. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Let's see. I guess we're, we're sort of coming around to about time, so I should probably wind it up. Um... And that's covered most of the questions I had. I guess I'm just sort of curious uh, for maybe on the, on the respect of, say, someone was perhaps like myself. Um, I should do hashtag asking for a friend. Um, <laughs> or, or not. I mean, of course, completely asking for a friend. Um, but, but seriously, um, you know, so getting back into... into to well, code and then and expressive specifically because I've been doing uh, I think too much writing for the last 12 to 18 months and looking to sort of get back into the feel and and find sort of Zen related projects do you have or would you have like a, a source for where to sort of find them because it's always easy to say do you have skills in PHP and um, this database or um you know, any other number of things like uh, Redis or whatever, but kind of Zend-esque specifically, or maybe is that kind of putting the cart before the horse? I, I'm not quite sure I understand. Are you wondering like if right. there's a way to uh, say that I've got uh, skills in Zend framework or expressive, like, Fra in a, uh, like a certification or? I realize my hesitation has led to an ambiguous question. Um <laughs> Okay, there one example comes to mind is is for Laravel as was it Lara jobs or something like which just says oh, okay. here here is a job in Laravel which requires A B and C. Is there something related for for sort of Zen frameworks and expressive, or is there a way to sort of you know put your your what would you say your ear to the ground to find out where that specific kind of work is around, and if so, right. what, what would it be? Yes, yeah, so, so we we. We don't actually have anything like this. Um, it's, you know, we've had a couple, it's actually come up a couple of times that uh, we're having some sort of jobs board would be good. It's interesting your timing because uh, late last week, somebody uh, said, you know, can I post a job in here in our uh, general channel in uh, uh, the Slack? And uh, it occurred to me, it's like, you know, there's nothing that says that people can't. And so we actually created a jobs board channel within the Slack so that people can uh, you know, post and say, hey, we've got this job opening that's coming up where people can post availability uh, for, for work. Um, so right now we do have that. And I actually kind of like the fact that it's in a Slack channel because that is somewhat ephemeral um, information. It's, it's stuff that uh, is going to be fairly time sensitive. Um, having a website would probably be even better. Uh, so if somebody wants to create it, you know, we can uh, certainly point people to it at this point, but mm -hmm. uh, we don't have anything like it currently. But the jobs board on the jobs board Slack channel uh, within uh, the Zen Framework uh, Slack is where you can look for that sort of stuff right now. Sweet. I'll, I'll tell the friend who was asking. Cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, it's just my odd Aussie humor. Um, all oh, right. That's well, that's well. That's been. Uh, thanks for the the chance to chat about some topics that I've been around for, for ages and, and, and really enjoy. Uh, and then it's the opportunity also to learn about um, you know, sort of career progression and, and key skills. Is there anything that you want to plug? Anything coming up? Anything of note that you want to draw attention to? Uh, yeah, actually two things. Um, the day that we're recording this, which is December 6th, if I, if I remember correctly, mm -hmm. um, just yesterday or the day before, we opened up the review period for PSR 15, which is the middleware interface. Um, so I'm really excited about that. You can hopefully look for that being ratified in the next month or so. But uh, if you're listening to this before the review period has ended, uh, I would love for people to you know give it a try, try coding against it, try creating implementations, uh, and let us know you know did we hit the the marks that we want to for the for this um, specification. Um, the other thing I want to point out is uh, this coming March, 
uh, my friend Chris Hartis, uh, the Grumpy programmer, is putting on a conference uh, first time called GrumpyCon. Uh, and he's invited six speakers, including myself, to be there. And so if you want a, a chance to hang out with me, uh, that would be a great place for you, you to meet me. Um, in particular, it's because we're only doing talks in the mornings and then it's open spaces in the afternoon. So it's a chance for you to work with myself and uh, five other highly skilled uh, and talented uh, development professionals, I guess mm -hmm. would be the best way of putting it because uh, they have different skills. Um, that's a, a really wonderful opportunity, I think, that people uh, have. And I'm actually really, really excited about this conference. So, uh, for people who would like to do that, that's uh, coming up in this coming March. So uh, check out the Grumpy Programmer. Uh, his uh, site has a link to the conference there. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, I, I heard him sort of talking about it, but I, I, I'd been a bit out of the loop for a while. So I'll check it out and add a link in the show notes and to PSR 15 and all the things that we've talked about. And it has been fun to chat. It's been great to finally uh, talk with you. This is great. So what did you think of the fireside chat with Matthew? Personally... I hope you could hear in my voice. I loved it. It was so much fun. It was so rewarding to have the opportunity to speak with him. I admit the episode went a bit longer than I'd planned, but when I was in, in post-production, I just thought there was just too much good stuff to really cut anything out. So that's why I left it in. If there's anything more that you want to know about this particular episode, make sure you check out the show notes as always, and you can find those for this episode at freethegeek.fm forward slash episode forward slash episode hyphen zero zero two eight if you want to know anything more about the show itself check out freethegeek.fm if you want to get in touch tweet me any given time at freeing the geek otherwise you can tweet me personally at setter mjd that's s-e-t-t-e-r-m-j-d and i'll see you probably in about two weeks for episode 29